Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, questions from the opposition after news that the RCMP considered charging Justin Trudeau over his vacation on the Aga Khan's private island. The Mounties didn't proceed with charging the Prime Minister because the Prime Minister may have granted himself a get-out-of-jail-free card. So did the Prime Minister give himself the power to break the law? The federal government calls an independent public inquiry into its use of the Emergencies Act. The judge will have broad access, including to classified documents. Um, our intent is to collaborate uh, with the judge so that he has a fulsome record so that he can do his job. And police prepare for another protest heading to Ottawa. I want to be clear with both organizers and participants. You will be held accountable for your actions before, during and after the events. We continue to monitor online and open source commentary relating to all events. Threatening or intimidating behaviors will be addressed with all appropriate enforcement actions. It's Tuesday, April 26th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Mark. So I'm sure that the Prime Minister uh, doesn't doesn't want to be talking about the Aga Khan vacation again from 2016. <laughs> uh, this is not what... He wanted on the first day that Parliament resumed after the after the break. Uh, but uh, here we are. Uh, yesterday, there were a lot of questions about the fact that there was a report saying the RCMP actually looked at the possibility of charging the prime minister with fraud after that infamous vacation on the Aga Khan's private island. And naturally, uh, this this provoked a lot of questions from the opposition. Yeah, you know, it's almost like a, a bulletin from ancient times, this story, because, yeah. you know, it, when the Prime Minister first got into this trouble, I think it was the first bit of trouble he got into. And it was it was seen as, you know, the, the joke was that a sunny ways Prime Minister had got into trouble for going to seek sunny days down south. But these were in the days where the Prime Minister could do no wrong. This seems like so many years ago, the idea of a prime minister actually traveling was was uh, didn't happen there for a while. It's serious. It's serious. I think uh, it's not going to change the minds of, of the people who don't like the prime minister. I think you heard this happening a lot during the, the last two election campaigns. Is this a prime minister who's in ethical conflict? So... It's, it is a blast from the past, an unwelcome blast from the past. I, I do think it's a different prime minister who would not do the same thing again, obviously. And, and a prime minister who, who doesn't sort of mix and mingle with, uh, you know, the, uh, the world's wealthy the way he used to, too. That was just a, it's a whole different era. Yeah, it, it does shed some light, though, on how serious that investigation was. I think whenever there is that that type of inquiry that occurs and the the police are asked to investigate, it always raises questions about are they just going through the formalities here? Is it or is is this mostly a political scandal? Is there really a legal issue? But these documents that that have turned up, these internal documents suggest this was treated very seriously. As it should be. And, you know, I'm glad we live in a country that, that does this. As you know and listeners know, an ethics violation doesn't carry many penalties with it. This is, is 
is, as you say, a suggestion that there could have been serious penalties. Would it have meant that the prime minister would not be elected again? I don't know that these are all hypotheticals, but it, it does tell you it's I think it's heartening to know that that these investigations are taken seriously. All right, let's turn to the government calling an inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. This is this is actually uh, a part of the process that follows the new Emergencies Act being invoked. Um, and and it, the interesting thing about the timing, of course, is there's another protest headed towards Ottawa. We're expecting on Friday this rolling thunder convoy, as it's being called. Uh, it's a motorcycle convoy in this case instead of trucks, but... Um, we can talk more about that in a moment, but what do you think about the the progress that uh, has started now on looking at the use of the Emergencies Act during the blockade, something that it seemed the government was reluctant to do, but finally went ahead and did? Yeah, I, I am really hoping that there, because I think there's a bunch of interesting stories about the emergencies legislation and and what led them to that. And I, I would hope that we're going to get some answers on that. You know, I've, I've made a really interesting observation, I think, in the last few weeks. I've noticed that the, the, the use of the emergencies legislation and the convoy protest itself domestically here in Canada is a political hot potato. You know, you still see the the Conservatives, they were doing it uh, yesterday in the House of Commons, standing up and saying this was not called for. On the other hand, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, the American ambassador, the new American ambassador, was at the Toronto Star's editorial board, and he was talking about how, and he said, I use the term advisedly. It's a term I was authorized to use. We, the United States was grateful for the use of the emergencies legislation. Hmm. So we, we have two stories here, really. We have the story of the emergencies legislation at home here in Canada, rightly, appropriately, the government has to, should have to meet a high bar for, for uh, introducing it. But internationally, I think it was the United States and other allies, because of information they were sharing, who were aware of the national security threat. And that's the thing that led to this, as far as we can tell. There was only hints about it. Yeah. We heard the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor say a couple of weeks ago, yes, that protest was about overthrowing the government. So far, nobody has been that open about how that was going to happen or why this was so serious. My worry is that's exactly the issue this inquiry is supposed to solve, is what was the health, the, the test, and what was the threat to the health of our democracy? Not just our economy, our democracy. Right. And so far, the government hasn't, you know, it's said, if we tell you, we have to kill you kind of um, responses. And I think written into the mandate of this new inquiry is, too, that in, you can't release any information about national security. So the very thing that prompted the emergencies legislation is a, sub, is a hot potato in this and not necessarily going to be disclosed. And I think, I, I, I'm sure that Justice Paul Rouleau, the, you know, the head of the commission, get used to his name, we'll hear lots. This is the, the, the circle he's going to have to square or the nut he's going to have to crack is 
you have to prove that this was a national security threat to Canada without ever saying what the national security threat is and will that be adequate? Not just politically, but for us as citizens, we need to know. And I don't know how he's going to do that, but I, I think he's going to spend a few sleepless nights worried about it. Yeah. All right, let's turn to the protest. It's planned for Friday. It is called Rolling Thunder Ottawa. One of the organizers is saying if the police don't allow the protesters to drive their bikes onto the streets around Parliament Hill, that there will be, quote, a free-for-all. The police have already said they won't allow vehicles in the area. And in fact, Wellington Street in front of the Parliament buildings is already blocked. It's been blocked since the previous protest ended. So... um, what do you think about about what could happen here? Is this round two, or is it going to be handled completely differently? I expect and hope, as a citizen of Ottawa, that it's going to be handled completely differently. You know, the, the old joke, is it too soon to make this joke? Uh, yes, it's too soon to talk about free-for-alls and convoy protests in Ottawa. The, it's not just the police that won't stand for it. I think the citizens of downtown Ottawa are not yet over this. I don't know that there would be much tolerance. You saw in the the waning days of the the protest here in the winter that citizens were starting to feel that they had to take matters into their own hands. And that's the last thing we want to see here too. So I expect a chastened city council, a chastened Ottawa police force, a more coordinated police effort will meet this protest because truly there is no tolerance for that. Anything that resembles a free-for-all, memories of that are too raw. As we, you know, we're seeing in this discussion about the inquiry, it's a, it's a, my view, I'm allowed to have one. It was a black mark on Canada's record, the existence of, of this protest and a pale shadow of it, I think, would um, be not that well tolerated in Ottawa. Yeah. All right. Finally, Susan, uh, we're hearing from the governor of the Bank of Canada that the key interest rate in the country could go up another half percentage point in June if inflation continues to grow. Uh, Tiff Macklem uh, was appearing at the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance yesterday. And it's interesting to hear that because, of course, the bank just two weeks ago raised its key interest rate by a half a percentage point. And it there was a period for a long time where it, it never touched the interest rate at all. And now we could see it changing twice in a couple of months uh, by significant number. So obviously inflation is top of mind for everyone. Yeah, and this is a political issue now. It is, it is political. The Bank of Canada usually was seeing, you know, except in rare points in its history as being outside the political fray at arm's length. But I've been really struck by the way Pierre Polyev has turned the Bank of Canada into another target and putting out tweets saying, uh, accusing the Bank of Canada of financial illiteracy. This, I'm sure, is probably shaking things up at the bank, which is not accustomed to being in this inflation and, and interest rates and the rising costs of mortgages, especially against the backdrop of the, the out-of-control housing prices, it's it's a toxic brew. It's uh, it's not going to be a, a fun summer to just be discussing housing and inflation. 
unless you're Pierre Polyev and uh, having a lot of fun with it on on social media. But I, I do think that it's uh, it's contributing to a toxic political environment right now. Yeah. All right, Susan, great to have your insights on all of this today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. That's Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. We know what this woke business is about, right? What is it about is dividing people. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Andrew Tumulty writes that to defeat Pierre Poilievre, the Liberals will have to first understand his appeal. He writes... Rhetoric aside, Poiliev is talking about housing, affordability, inflation, and freedom. He is also drawing large crowds and media coverage while he does it. If there are nine liberals who don't think Poiliev can win the next election, it would be wise to have a tenth one arguing why he can and will. Finding any politician detestable is no reason to think others will. If Poiliev becomes leader of the Conservative Party, liberals need a plan to beat him during the next election campaign. It's hard to plan for something that you don't believe will happen, which is why someone must make the case for why it will. In the National Post, Joel Kotkin argues the working classes are a volcano waiting to erupt. Kotkin writes, Voters' anger can sometimes be expressed in crude terms, but it reflects real economic distress, made worse by COVID and now the Russian war, stoking inflation to the highest level in 40 years. The first signs of class unrest are already evident. The beleaguered working and middle classes are taking to the streets, as seen with the Canadian truckers or the Gilets Jaunes movement in France. We do not know when or if the volcano will erupt, but the prospect of it erupting will be with us for the foreseeable future. In the conversation, Catherine Carstairs argues Canada still needs a public dental health plan despite decades of Medicare. She writes, Canadians pride ourselves on our health care system, but there are significant gaps in coverage. Nearly one-third of Canadians do not have dental insurance, and that number climbs to 50% for lower-income Canadians. Without dental care, minor issues like cavities can result in serious infections. If the Liberals follow through on their promise to provide a dental care program, this will reduce the gaps in care and relieve the suffering of many Canadians. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will speak with the President of Moldova before chairing the Cabinet meeting and attending question period. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will take part in a virtual meeting hosted by the United States Secretary of the Treasury. The Special Joint Committee on the Declaration of Emergency will hear from Minister of Justice David Lametti and Minister of Public Safety Marco Mendicino. Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan will speak at the Canada Building Trades Union's annual conference in Ottawa. And Northern Affairs Minister Daniel Vandal will take part in a Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada plaque unveiling ceremony to commemorate the Winnipeg Falcons Hockey Club. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Tuesday, April 26th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.